I want to ask a simple question. It has a pretty complicated answer, and this is it. Where is God? If you ask a person that question, the answers are limitless. And honestly, especially in Austin, you can strike up a pretty large debate. You know, in your mind's eye right now, you might picture God on a cloud in the sky someplace, right? Blue sky, white cloud, white beard, and he looks down upon you. Maybe you picture him on this giant gold throne in heaven, and he's surrounded by angelic hosts. Some of you might say that he's in your heart. That's where he is. Some of you might say, uh, I think he's in my heart. Uh, there are people that would say he's in everything. Yet there are others that say he's in nothing. He's in nothing. As elementary as these answers might seem, here's the reality. The presence of God is one of the most common dividing lines between the most common of religions. So living in Austin, I think we ought to know what other religions say about where God is, don't you think? You might be approached by somebody and they say, so what makes your God any different than mine? Uh, 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 uh. So let's study this together. I want you to, to take some notes on these religions. Let's talk about Islam for a moment. The Muslim believes that the God that they call Allah, which literally means the God, is the all-powerful creator of a perfect ordered universe. They believe that Allah is transcendent, which essentially means that he is above everything and he's not really a part of his creation. They believe that if Allah chooses to, he can draw near, right? He can come near. But here's the kicker. From a human vantage point, he's essentially unknowable. The Quran says that he can come as close to you as the veins in your neck, which is pretty close. But the relationship with God is not there, so you don't know that he's that close. He's transcendent. So where is the presence of God for a Muslim? God is far away, even if he comes close. Let's talk about Buddhism. The Buddhist explicitly rejects a creator. He denies endorsing any and all views on creation. They believe that questions on the origin of the world are worthless ones to ask. Here's why. Do you know what the highest mark for a Buddhist is? Do you know what they seek? It's one word. It's called nirvana. It's not a band. Nirvana is tranquility. It is peaceful balance. It is the alleviation of stress. And here's what they say. A Buddhist says that if God cannot be grasped, if he cannot be known for sure that he exists, then it essentially confuses that peace. It doesn't give them any assurance, and so therefore, it's not even worth exploring. Where is God for a Buddhist? It doesn't matter, and it's definitely not worth exploring. Listen, this morning, I'm not, I don't want to bash other religions. I just want us to be aware of the difference between Christianity and the other major religions of the world. We're asking, where is God? Where is God for a Scientologist? I don't know how much time I have, but this one's pretty complicated. If you know anything about Scientology, they are so close on so many things and then so far away on others. Here's the deal with Scientology. A Scientologist can believe in and have a personal relationship with God. They do believe that. They call him the supreme being. However, 
One who studies this religion is not permitted to believe in God fully until they've reached what they call the eighth dynamic. The eighth dynamic for them is, is a symbol. It is infinity. It is the, the eight that is sideways. And it's at that eighth dynamic that this maturity is achieved. It's achieved through a series of checks and balances that they call auditing and training. It's a very calculated religion. Think about it. Anytime that you use the word auditing as the major primary thing you do, you're kind of that language that everybody that likes things in straight lines, that's where you're going to gravitate to. At that point, here's the deal. At that point, the God that you believe in is up to you. Essentially, your spiritual maturity, the process you went on, will now allow you to decide where and who God is. Where is God for a Scientologist? I'd say he's at the end of a very long and complicated process. One really quick one, because I think this one is pretty sad, an atheist. Atheism is essentially the belief in unbelief. I feel sorry for atheists, honestly, because you go to one and they say, so, so you're an atheist, what do you believe in? I don't. I don't believe in anything. They honestly and radically reject the belief that God exists. It just seems to me like a very boring way to live, to not have anything that you believe in. Where is God for an atheist? God is not, and therefore he is nowhere to be found. I want you to turn to Psalm 139. And as you're going there, let's talk about what God is for us, for us as Christians. Brent touched on it a few weeks ago when he was talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. We believe in a triune God, that it is God in three persons. It's the Trinity, right? A little magic trick for you. It is one God, watch this, one God, three persons, Three persons, one God. Got that? I'll show you how I did that after the service. It's really sleight of hand is what they call it, sleight of hand. So where is God for a Christian? God the Father. Let's break it down. He is in heaven, and he watches over all. Psalm 113.5 and Matthew 6.9 are just a couple of references that I want you to write down. God the Son, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, also in heaven. Hebrews 12, 2. You know, God the Son isn't just chilling up there. You know that. He's doing some pretty cool stuff on our behalf. If you read Scripture, you'll see that he is our intercessor, right? That he prays for us. That he's our mediator between us and the Father. You'll see that oftentimes, I love this, when we worship, what does it say he does? It says that he gets up off his throne and he dances over us. So some of us might say, ah, uh, that dancing thing, that's really not for me. Well, works for Jesus. God the Holy Spirit. This is the one we want to study out. But he is with us and lives in our hearts. Amen? Psalm 139. I'm going to read this. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, O oh Lord, know it completely. Oh, man, he, he knew I was going to say that. That's really awesome. 
He knows it completely before we even say it. I'm going to skip to verse 7. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are also there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. I'm going to skip again. Verse 13, the last verse of this chapter says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Think about that. He had his hand in the process of knitting you together. God the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Let's study together the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. He's everywhere all the time. There's nothing else in the world that's everywhere. Think about that for a moment. Not the smallest of molecules, not the most common of molecules, not air, not water, not even Facebook is everywhere. You might think so, but it's not. I mean, really. Holy Spirit is the only thing everywhere. There are upwards of six and a half billion people on the earth. And there's just an immeasurable span of, of distance between us all, right? When you fly over the country, you get to see that. That there's just land and land and land with no people. And then take the earth and put it in the equation of the universe, and the earth becomes a blip on the radar screen. Okay, and on that earth, there is you and me. And the Holy Spirit fills every space that exists. Even those places that at the end of our universe, at the end of what we've studied, at the end of what we know, he's further than that because we're still learning that there's more and more out there. So sometimes we have this view of the Holy Spirit, and it's a myopic one. It's that he's the, the limping leg of the Trinity, right? I mean, let's be honest. It's the one that we avoid. We don't talk about him. Do we pray to him? Some of us do. Some of us do not. The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, and he is God. And we've studied this series. Don't, don't you just love how we've been breaking it down, and we're not just running straight to the scary stuff of the Holy Spirit, the things that freak everyone out? but we're talking about the Holy Spirit as a person, that he is with us, that he will never leave us, and that he is everywhere all the time. I like to say it this way. He sees you, he hears you, and he is with us. That's great encouragement for somebody that feels like they're all alone. Turn to John chapter 16, if you would. Um, this is Jesus making his rounds before he takes off into the sky and he sends the Holy Spirit to us. Uh, we've read this scripture several times in this series. But very truly I tell you, sorry, verse 7, John 16. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, this advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Can you imagine hearing those words if you were a disciple? Listen, he says to the disciples, it is good for you that I'm going away. They couldn't imagine it getting any better than that. Think about it. They walked with Jesus day in, day out. They were with him all the time. They knew that he was God in the flesh. They knew that he died and went to a cross. Some of them doubted that he might not come back, that it was just a man that taught good things, but then he did. He came back. He's alive among them again. 
And now he's saying, oh, sorry, I'm not staying. I'm going to send somebody else to you. It must have felt kind of like, you know, if I was a disciple, I'd be like, so uh, are you, like, breaking up with us? Is that what's going on here? Is this, is this you just checking out on the relationship? But did you know that Jesus knew something they didn't? They knew that he had subjected himself to limitations. Look, it wasn't just that Jesus had limitations. It was limitations that he chose, right? He chose to take them on. Um, Jesus came as fully God, but he also came as fully man. He embraced us entirely. He didn't come to, to just be God on the earth. He came to experience everything the way we experience it. I'll put it this way. Jesus Christ had a home address. Think about that. The Holy Spirit everywhere. Jesus, you got to go to his house, knock on the door. Imagine, I don't know, Jesus is 12, right? And I don't know, Ananias from down the street comes over, knocks on the door. Mary answers and says, uh, hey, Mary, uh, is Jesus home? I want to I play outside. And she says, yes, Ananias, he's home, but he's upstairs talking to the Father. Think about it. He had a home address. I think Jesus' life was full of you had to be there experiences, right? Think about that. So, so Jesus um, turns water to the wine. Oh, man, you missed it. You had to be there for that. Jesus heals the blind man, puts mud in his eyes, says, go wash it out. Sorry, bro. Had to be there. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Sorry, bro. You missed that one. You had to be there. He knew that he had limitations. No matter how hard he could try, he knew that he came for a purpose, and that purpose was complete. And so he says to them, it is better that I go away. It's not that the Holy Spirit was better than Jesus. It was his part in the Trinity, in the perfect one God. Turn to John chapter 20 now. This is uh, one of my favorite passages um, because I think it plays into most of our lives in some way. Uh, this is also Jesus after he had risen from the grave, and he was uh, Star Trek beaming around all over the place, right? So uh, I know I keep saying imagine this, but I want you to go with me, okay? So Jesus, for 33 years, walked the earth as a man, fully God, fully man. Jesus would travel from city to city, right? And if you wanted to talk with him, you had to walk alongside of him. I would imagine that at times he got pretty tired of walking because he knew full well that he could just get up on wings like eagles and fly to the next town. But he didn't do it because he chose the limitations of man. Well, now he's raised from the grave. And he is in this new space. He is in this, he's in this uh, crossover. He's going on to heaven, right? It's his next step. And so what does he do immediately when he raises from the grave? He spends like four chapters light beaming around and appearing to people and going over here. And all of a sudden he's like, hey, what's up? And so Jesus is doing this all throughout the scriptures. And this is one of those. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, this is awesome. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas, you unbeliever. <laughs> I'm telling you, I would have been the same way. Think about your personality. You probably put yourself in that boat. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. This is awesome. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. All right, so NIV puts an exclamation point there. That means that in the original language, it wasn't peace be with you. No, it was him coming through an unlocked door, right? Imagine this. Thomas is sitting there, and he's like, uh, you know, Jesus knew that he said, um, there ain't no way. I'm not believing this, right? Jesus comes through the unlocked door. Boom. Peace. <laughs> Scared him half to death. He says, I'm with you. Then he said to Thomas, this is verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas had had a series and history of doubt. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Again, not the reverent, my Lord and my God. No, I think he said, oh my Lord. <laughs> Listen, I do. I want to challenge you to open scripture on your own time. And I want you to read it as it applies to your life. Don't read it as if it's just this story told long ago. God's word is active. It's present. It's with us. It is something that we can learn from. And so when you read scripture, don't be afraid of this. Don't be afraid of breaking it down in a very tangible way. It's not unreverencing God. And if you're taking it that way, please forgive me. But I'm not trying to unreverence scripture. What I'm trying to do is get us to understand what it would have been like, right? Oh my Lord, you just came through the wall. And now I'm touching your side, putting my hand in it. That's weird. What does that look like? <laughs> Verse 29, then Jesus told him, and this is what I want us to get out of this. Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have chosen to believe. Here's what I think. I think that Jesus was forecasting. I think Jesus knew that Thomas dealt with doubt, and I think he also knew that the world would one day be full of Thomases. That Jesus would go away, no more home address, no more walking alongside of him as he goes from town to town. We would have to believe without seeing. You couldn't touch his scars anymore. But you know what? Now, God could be with everyone at the same time. Why is that important? You say, I'm all alone. He says, no, you're not. You say, you know what? Nobody hears me. He says, I heard that. You say, I can't do this by myself. He says, I will help you. He sees you. He hears you. He is with us. Turn to Matthew 18. I'm going to read verse 18 through 20. We're going to move on and talk about another type of the Holy Spirit's presence. And this is the gathering presence of the Holy Spirit. Together in his name. Verse 18 says, Truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Gathering in his name. 
I want to point out that it's not just about the gathering, right? Because people gather everywhere. People gather down at the restaurants. People gather at the football stadium. I'm crossing my fingers that that's going on with the NFL. Pray with me. If you know anything about it, if you don't know anything about it, pray for the National Football League. I can't imagine a season without it. It really would just creep me out. The gathering presence of the Holy Spirit. Since we already settled that he's everywhere all the time, is it that he can be more present? Why is it specifically pointed out that he is in the midst of two or three gathering? I don't think that he's more there. I think these statements, let me say it like this. He is never more present, but he is quite often more active. Prayer and worship increase the Holy Spirit's activity. That's something that we believe here at One Chapel. Ross has said it, and he'll say it again and again, that prayer and worship increase the Holy Spirit's activity. It's kind of the idea that when we lean in, he leans back. Right? I'm going to get into that in relationship standpoint in just a little bit, but But that's what's happening here. Did you know that when we gather in his name, it's not just the holy, reverent times. It it is this. It is church. It is when we come together and and we're here in this theater and we worship God together. But it's also just around the dinner table, isn't it? When you're gathered with people that are like-minded, like-hearted, and you come together with a purpose, he's in the middle of that. This is where I get just fired up about one chapel. Because I know that being led by a pastor who values the presence of the Holy Spirit, I know for certain that this is more than emotionalism or a polished performance. Listen, I want us to be careful as a church that we, as we settle this thing, as we, as we build culture, and if you're not sure you're building culture, let's go back to the family room debate. We have built culture, and it is that Nobody wants to call it the family room that is under 23. And so it is about building culture. And did you know that we can aid that or we can, we can crush that? If we come to this service and our evaluation is all about what we get out of it, if our evaluation is, is how perfect and how performance-based it was and did they sing my favorite songs and was the volume right for me and, and, and all those things are important, don't get me wrong, but if that is the only thing that you come here for, if that's the only thing we come here for, then we're going to get stuck in a rut. We're going to find ourselves not pursuing the Holy Spirit. We're going to find ourselves pursuing a polished performance, right? Listen to A.W. Tozer, this Quote says, the church that can't worship must be entertained. And men who can't lead a church to worship must provide that entertainment. Listen, I don't want to provide entertainment. I do want us to worship with passion. And at times you may be evaluating it as a show. But I'm telling you now, if you hang around long enough, you will see that it's the heart that's just coming through. It's us leaning in on God. Here's a statement. He, the Holy Spirit, is pursuing us. And likewise, he, the Holy Spirit, desires that we pursue him back. Would you agree with that? Let me suggest two seemingly simple ways that we can actively pursue him. Number one, we should pray without ceasing. What does that mean? 
It doesn't mean go in your prayer closet and pray every day 24-7. That's not what it means. Praying without ceasing means to pray intentionally. It means to pray with life. It means to have God on your heart, in your mind all the time. Don't let him go far from the things that you do. And you'll find yourself in less sin. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. I don't want you to go there, but these are just instructive phrases. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. What a random phrase to put at the backside of that. Do not quench the spirit. Essentially, he's saying that, look, if we don't keep God at the front, if we don't rejoice always, if we don't pray and keep him in the focus, uh, we somehow quench the spirit out of our lives. We, we push him away. Pray without ceasing. I want us to pray together often. Tuesday night prayer meeting, come, join us. Sunday morning, Ross is meeting with a group of men out in the lobby very specifically. Come pray with him. Pray together in your connect groups. Do whatever you can to pray. And let me encourage you in this. Pray out loud. Uh-oh. I don't have anything to say. My point exactly. When you pray out loud, you activate something that puts your mind above all those other thoughts. When we pray quietly, sometimes just the silent prayer, we're thinking about the food that we want to eat after we're done with this. But when you pray out loud, nothing else can get in that space. Number two, we need to worship without reservation. Worship without reservation. This is something I'm just going to spend a few minutes on and then I'm done. Don't turn here, but mark this down. Psalm 47 says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Psalm 22 says, he inhabits or is enthroned upon the praises of his people. Listen, you might say this. I'm going to read it. You might say, I definitely don't feel God when I worship. Maybe I used to, but not now. I see people around me engaged in the songs, passionately expressing themselves, but for me, not anymore. I just don't feel him. It's kind of embarrassing, actually, to even try to take so much effort. This morning, I think I'll just keep to myself. After all, and we say it a lot, he knows my heart. I just want to point this out. Can you imagine if we treated our earthly relationships that way? So Ross and Amy have been married 19 years. Casey and I have been married six and a half. That tells you how old Ross is. <laughs> if I came to Casey and I said, babe, I just want you to know that I love you. There's no one in the world that I'd rather do life with. If I said that to her without tears, maybe with, if I said that to her and she looked back at me and said, you know, I love you too, but I just don't feel it anymore. I see you lavishing your love upon me, but it's just not worth it for me. It's kind of embarrassing actually. To even try just takes too much effort. It wouldn't be a very dynamic relationship, would it? I'd have a hard time with that. She doesn't do that. Let me say this. We should not be motivated to worship by how we feel, but motivated to worship by our convictions. 
Feelings are fickle, dependent emotions. Convictions are foundational, independent truths. You see the difference? Whether you feel it or not doesn't determine whether you should engage in worship. Pursuing the Holy Spirit doesn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do with what I believe about him, my convictions. It's kind of frustrating though, right? Goosebumps this time, but not goosebumps last time, right? Those holy goosebumps that we get when we're in the presence of God. Some of you might be saying, hey, I haven't felt that in a long, long, long time, that you feel like God is far from you. Don't worship from the way you feel. The reality is that expressing love brings the feelings of love to life. You've got to make a choice. Here's my biggest issue with worship corporately at times. Worship is our response to God's love. That's the definition. Worship is our response to God's love. Therefore, to respond is an action. Would you agree? To respond is an action. Therefore, to worship is an action. Look, sometimes we say, well, he knows my heart, so I don't really have to get engaged physically. Again, try to treat your earthly relationships that way. See how long they last. No matter how we try to paint it, the Lord is concerned with how we worship on the outside. He is. That might be hard for you to swallow because you think, ooh, well, my motives would be to, to let the person next to me see how extravagant my worship is. Well, then settle that in your heart before you get to the outside. But do respond to him in a physical way. He says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Set your feet to a dance. And then you watch him get up off his throne and he dances over you. So here's the issue. So we sing songs like, I am free. Right? And some of us are like this. Through you the blind will see. Through you... I don't know the words. Through you, my heart screams, I am free. Hard reality, right? Nobody's judging you in that, but I don't believe you. I think that what the songs call for us to do, we should do. That's just my take on it. This is my soapbox. I don't get to preach here very often, and I'm going to take it. <laughs> Listen, I want this for us. I want us to come anticipating his presence together. The electrifying through our bodies when we walk through those doors, on time, preferably. And again, I don't get to preach here very often, so I can say that. I say it due to the people that are here during the first song sometimes, but it's not the people I should be talking to because they're the ones that are here. But I want us to worship without reservation. That's just the bottom line. Not for me, not for Ross, not to impress the people around you. Settle that in your heart and then engage. Express yourself to God. Watch those expressions bring the feelings of love to life in you. And don't stop. Keep planting those seeds. You may feel them again. You may not. My guess is that you will, but that's not the reason we do it, right? Just want to read one more scripture and then I'm going to close. You guys can come on back up. Second Chronicles 5, 
13 through 14. It says, The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by the trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord, and they sang, He is good. His love endures forever. They sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Listen, church, I long for the day that we can't go about our agenda, our timeline, because the Holy Spirit reveals himself in that kind of a way. Don't you? And some of you say, no, I don't. Actually, I don't, because I've seen that happen, and it's kind of creepy. Listen, life as usual isn't the life with God. It's not. And so when we choose to embrace the Holy Spirit, he embraces us back. It would be the third type of presence here, the the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, but I don't have time to get into it, so I'm going to have to let Ross take that one. And Ross actually pointed this out a couple of weeks ago when in Narnia they were talking about Aslan. What did they say? They said, is he safe? And everybody said, no. But what they say? But he is good. The Holy Spirit is big. He fills every space. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. He's right in the middle of us when two or more of us come together. He hears you. He sees the things that are going on in your life, in my life. And he's the God that wants to come and reveal himself to you every single day. I want you to close your eyes. We're going to wrap this up. Right now, maybe for the first time for many of you and for the first time in a long time, I want you to address the Holy Spirit in your prayer. Not God the Father, not God the Son. I want you to address the Holy Spirit as God in your prayer. I want you to ask him to draw near. Ask him to be active in your life. To help you through that situation that right now brings you so much anxiety. Or maybe that situation that brings you so much fear. Ask him to meet you in the middle of that relationship that is so difficult right now. Might be a marriage. Might be a child. Might be a parent. That relationship that's so difficult, ask the Holy Spirit to come and dwell there, to meet you in that place. Ask him to allow you to forgive or maybe to be forgiven, to bring comfort, rest, peace. Just right there, just between you and him. Whatever it is, ask him to come and show his omnipresence alive in you. He sees you, he hears you, and he is with us. Now this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to point us to a scripture, Revelation 3, verse 20, that says that he stands at every heart's door and he knocks. So here's the reality. With your eyes closed, I want you to think about this, that this omnipresent God, the Holy Spirit, he is everywhere. Except for in the hearts of those that refuse him. He will not invade your life. He wants a relationship with you, and you cannot force relationship. It's called free will. And this morning, I want 
to point those of you in that direction that maybe have strayed far from him. Maybe you've asked him into your heart, but you know you've gone far from the Lord. Or maybe there's some here this morning that for the first time ever, you want to give your heart to Jesus. He's standing at your heart's door right now, and he is knocking. And if you feel him doing that, I want you to do something really simple, but very profound. I want you to raise your hand high in the air. Come on, you feel him calling you. You feel him knocking on your heart's door. I want you to raise your hand high in the air. I see it. I see your hand. I see your hand. Ask him to come in. Ask him to come in and dwell in your life. It's a joyful thing. It's something that he's wanted to do. Come into our hearts, Jesus. We love you. We give you full control of our lives. Have your way. Not our way, but yours, Jesus. Not your will, or not our will, but yours, oh God. Okay, now I just want everybody to look up this way. And look, if you made a decision this morning in any way, if that was the first time that you accepted Christ into your life, or maybe you came back to him and you feel like you've just been renewed, then on your connection card, I want you to check the box that indicates this. And I want you to turn it in. In just a moment, we're going to take up our offering. And when we do that, I want you to put that into the offering bucket or maybe out in the lobby out at Guest Central. And I just want you to do that because it gives us an opportunity to help you take those next steps. It helps us know how to connect with you, how to, to, to help disciple you as you move forward. It's important to us. We don't want to just leave it at this. Life was never meant to be done alone. Amen? Never meant to be done alone. Thank you for letting me share with you this morning.